0: One of the things that's very striking at the start of one of Paul's letters is the response he would get when he told people about the cross, about the message of Jesus. Listen to what he says. The Apostle Paul writes, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God So there are attacks on the message of the cross from from both sides. Paul says the Jews can't get it, it's a a stumbling block for them. Why? Well, because how could God come in the flesh and die pathetically and weakly and embarrassingly on a cross? That just doesn't work. And it's a similar story for for Gentiles, for Greeks, non-Jews. For them the story just sounds plain stupid, it sounds foolish, it's the stuff fairy tales are made of. They were people who loved wisdom and rhetoric and logic and arguments. And this message of a God who takes on flesh and dies just doesn't sound very wise. At least to human ears. So even 20 years or so after the event, for different reasons, people who who hear about the message of the cross really struggle with it. They struggle with the idea that it was God's rescue plan for his broken world. And it's true today, isn't it? Aren't we tempted by those, those feelings ourselves? Perhaps that's you this evening, wondering if it ever happened. Is this just Christians whistling in the dark, just an idea that we've made up to help us get through life, to, to make sense of this world that we live in? And if it did happen, then, then how could it happen? And why could it happen? What I hope we'll see this evening ever so clearly is that these verses that we will look at are We'll see that it's not an accident, and we'll see that it wasn't without meaning. In fact, as John's been preparing us week on week, it's the place we most clearly see the glory of Jesus. Now, the glory of Jesus is an important theme. If you've been around um, over the last weeks or months, as we've been through John, you will see, you will have seen something of his glory. It starts off uh, in chapter 1. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And and by glory we mean something like excellence, praiseworthiness, magnificence. It's it's the kind of word you would use of a king sat on a throne. Or or a a goal in football. Or a glorious shot in tennis. Or or a meal that a friend has cooked for us. Something that's worthy of praise. And John's quite convinced that Jesus is the glory of God. He shows us what God is like. (laughs) infinitely better than a goal or a shot or a meal, whatever it might be. Something that's praiseworthy. And yet, here's a surprise. When you look at John's Gospel and you see, you can split it in two. The first 12 chapters, basically the book of signs, they're pointers showing us something of who Jesus is. Miracles. And then the second half, 13 to 21, is sometimes called the book of glory. This word we see again and again and again, and the climax of all of that, where it's all heading, is today's verses, the cross. That's the surprise. This weak, naked man dying on a cross shows us the glory of God in sharp focus. God's promised king. It shows us why he's worth following, why he's worth praising, why he's worth building our lives upon. And it shows us why you can't just walk away from these verses unchanged. So we're going to look at the passage under four headings. Now I've managed to mislay the clicker Things seems to have disappeared. That is fine. I'm going to press buttons down there. So, we have four points for this evening. The weakness of God's dying king, verse 17 to 24. Uh, The kindness of God's dying king, verse 25 to 27. The control of God's dying king, verse 28 to 30. And the fruit of God's dying king, verse 31 to 42. Here we see the glory of God. In a weak man dying on a cross. First point, the weakness then of God's dying king. And this is the huge paradox that we've already spoken of really in our journeys through John. Here is Pilate mockingly, arrogantly putting a sign above this man. And yet he writes more than he knows. See verse 19. He says, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, didn't write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I've written. He writes more than he knows, what's meant to be a display of his arrogant power, that's written in a number of languages, so all the nations can read it. And yet it's true. This is God's King for the world. God Himself, come in the flesh. And yet his glory is not seen in throne and thrones and splendor and pomp and ceremony, it's seen in weakness. That's the paradox. Either side of the sign you've got weakness. So it's almost embarrassing, verse seventeen to eighteen there. He's carrying his own method of execution. He's condemned next to two criminals and he's cursed by God. That's what the law said would happen if you were killed on a cross. And then the other side of the sign, verse 23 to 24, they strip him. Nakedness, this side of the fall was a sign of shame and of disgrace. A sign of vulnerability to the extreme. And that's the paradox. God's king, Pilate, is utterly right. And yet he doesn't look like a king. He doesn't look glorious. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it sounds foolish. Now, if you've been with us at all really through John, we've seen this paradox coming through again and again and again. You know the tension isn't new. So let me just give you an example. We stumbled over it in chapter 12. Uh, Jesus replied, "'The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, "'very truly, I tell you, "'unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies.'" It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And then he continues, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. But just as a, a kernel of wheat must die to be fruitful, so God's king so Jesus must die to bear fruit. And as he hangs there in weakness and shame, so the Father does glorify his name. We see the glory of God, we see his majesty and his splendour and his power, his kindness, his love for his people. And of course for many around us that kind of glory takes us by surprise because we think glory and we think well that's untouchable, that's regal stuff. We don't think weakness. There was an article a few years ago talking about how to particularly teach teenagers in RE classes. How to get them to listen and to engage with truth and religion and that kind of stuff. So they said, well, why don't you use various films, various media? And so uh, they went to things that they watch at the cinema to help us illustrate what the different religions believe. And so Superman was one person that they used to illustrate Christ. Apparently they said there are many parallels between Jesus and Superman. Both arrive on earth in unusual circumstances after being sent by their fathers. Both move from relative obscurity to a prominent adulthood. Both are able to help the humans they are sent to live with. And both struggle to stand up for truth and injustice. Maybe... But some people you speak to think of Jesus in that kind of way. They say, well, he's a bit of a superman. It wasn't that hard to die on a cross, was it? I mean, he was all right in the end. Many non-Christians I speak to have, have thought of that. And yet we're never given a license to slip into that kind of thinking as we think of the weakness of Jesus. He was God's divine king, and yet he was fully man, and he really suffered. The Bible demands that we keep that tension there. He's a human like you and like me with real flesh, a real body. And so the Bible says he's a saviour who can sympathise with our weaknesses. He knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to mourn over death. He knows what it means to struggle through life. We have a saviour who is a man, a weak man. And so that shows us a different kind of glory from what we're used to. But firstly, we see the weakness of God's dying king, verse 17 to 24. Secondly, the kindness of God's dying king, verse 25 to 27. I'm going to be honest, I think these verses stretch me in my understanding of the cross. I think they feel slightly out of place you see, they give us a window, firstly, into into what was going on there. They give us a sense of authenticity, a sense of kind of first-person eyewitness. So there were mourners who were there, who were at the cross. There were supporters who loved him deeply, who cared. They were sad as he died. There was confusion and pain and misunderstanding. Their hopes were confounded. This one they had banked it all on, dying on a cross in front of them. Seemingly cursed by God, he you get a glimpse of reality as if you're there with them. And yet I think it also gives us something of a, of a window into what Jesus is achieving as he dies on the cross. That's hopeful, because my view of the cross can easily be too mechanistic or, or sort of doctrinal and not particularly people-focused or personal. So it's striking that in the midst of this horrific pain and suffering, the most pain ever on the earth It's incredibly striking how he's so other-centred. And so I wonder if we're getting almost a practical reminder into why he's dying. His, His love for his people, in the midst of agony and pain, his priority is for others. Verse 26, he's thinking of a mother, seemingly now a widow, so a dependent, who is losing a son, who's losing hope. Verse 27, he's thinking of his close friend, He's losing a brother. And so he brings the two together and this new family unit is formed after he's gone through his death. I find that profoundly challenging. It's a huge challenge in the midst of busy lives. Because if you're anything like me, do you find that when you suffer in the little things, you just get self-absorbed? When the pressure is on with deadlines, that's when you get really selfish. When you're suffering with illness or with tiredness, that's when it's hard to consider others' needs. This sort of self-preoccupation for me can mean that stuff like prayer for others can slip out the window if life is hard, or hospitality goes down the list of priorities, or simply in being kind. It's striking that in the midst of awful suffering here, Here's something of a model from Jesus of what it means to love other people. When life's easy, it's pretty easy to care about others. When life is hard, it's so much harder. It challenges me to ask, how others-centred am I? How much do I care? So, secondly, kind, just kindness, this, just this glimpse of his new family unit being formed through and after his death, and the model of love we see there. Thirdly, verse 28 to 30, we see God, the control of God's dying king. And that sounds a pretty surprising thing to say, because you could read these verses and be forgiven for thinking, well, this is not plan A. This is not how it was meant to be. But again, one of the things we've seen week after week is that the cross is not an error or a blunder. It is utterly part of the plan. Now I have to say, I'm not particularly a fan, and I've not really seen it. But in the the uh, musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber, Jesus Christ Superstar, you get that refrain at the end from the lips of Jesus: "Did you mean to die like that? Was that a mistake?" Or did you know your messy death would be a record breaker? It's not an uncommon thought. I remember folk in previous churches I've worked at have said, it was such a shame that Jesus died. Such a waste of a young life, they would say. These are conversations I've had with with people. And it kind of shows the pop theology that we pick up. They've missed the point of Jesus. Do Do you know, he's not primarily about teaching you to make the world a better place. That's not why Jesus came. He's not primarily about morality, or about ethics, or about how to live well. No, no, the scope and the purpose of his coming was so much bigger than that. Actually, we saw it again back in chapter 12. We've already looked at it. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Judas sings, was it a mistake? Jesus says, no, no, this was why I came. This was my hour. And so at the heart of these verses, Jesus' control, despite the wickedness and the evil, is really evident. You see it firstly in his fulfilling various prophecies. I think there are a total of at least four in today's verses. The drumbeat that John is playing is that this was meant to happen. This is part of the plan. The first one is there in verse 24. It's from Psalm 22, it's a a fascinating psalm, a psalm of King David, a psalm of a king who is set upon, who is hounded, who is victimised, and yet finally who is rescued and victorious and praised to the ends of the earth and for generations to come. An amazing psalm that looks forward, it seems, to the cross. The second prophecy is there in verse 28, it's probably from Psalm 69. Another psalm of King David, another psalm about rescue, another psalm of uh, a king suffering and being vindicated and then God being praised as he's rescued. Third one is there in verse 36. It's the language of sacrifice. We looked at it briefly last time. It's thinking of places like the Passover in Exodus 12. And we'll look at this one and the next one in verse 37 in a bit. Uh, verse 37 is Zechariah 12 and verse 10. We will come to that one shortly. But again, for now, just notice the drumbeat from John is God has not fallen asleep. This was meant to happen. He is in perfect control. And if you read this knowing your Old Testament, then you will know something of what's coming. So it's clear in the prophecies. It's secondly clear as well in verse 30. You see there are those amazing words... When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished, says Jesus. This is mission accomplished. He doesn't say, I am finished. This isn't a cry of defeat. This is an announcement of success, of fulfilment. It's from the, the banking world. It's the word you would stamp on an invoice when the account was settled. It says paid. It says done. Finished. As Jesus died on the cross. He's cancelling a debt. Each of us, if you like, are drowning. We're, we're drowning in spiritual debt. We've scorned our maker. We've shaken our little fists. We've removed God from the equation. And thought we were free. And yet, amazingly, the one we rejected, the one who made us, is the one who pays the debt for us. And he pays that debt himself. He is utterly in control. And actually we'll see much more of that as we look at the last few verses. The final point, the fruit of God's dying king. Verse 31 to 42. I'm going to read them again for us. Uh, And I'd like you to, it helps just to think, close your eyes, reflect, take them in. And then we'll think about The fruit that he uh, brings about for us. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. When they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds The very first conversations in John's Gospel ends with John the Baptist pointing at Jesus and saying, Look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Which is just what we're to think 18 chapters later. As we look at this broken and dying man hanging on a cross. So notice in verse 31 there, it was the day of preparation. That is, the day to prepare for the Passover. Passover. Remember the Passover? The Passover, the most important festival of the year for the Jews. They remember God rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. A time when every single Jewish family would would focus on God's judgment falling on Egypt and on God rescuing his people from judgment. Rescue whereby a lamb would be killed without breaking a single bone in its body Once it's killed, the blood with a hyssop plant is then painted over the door frame and said the Lord's judgment would pass over that house and the firstborn son will be spared because in that house, the lamb dies instead of the son. And that's the festival they were preparing to celebrate. That's the image in their mind, the truth. They're collectively mulling over the entire nation, united around meals in each house. The lamb dying to rescue us from judgment. And with dripping irony in verse 31, John says, so as not to spoil the festival, they don't want to look at Jesus. They want him taken down. They should have heeded John the Baptist. They should have looked at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But they remove him. And they don't break his legs, verse 33. What would happen here would generally be the hits of the criminals would be smashed, which would mean they would be unable to pull themselves up to take a breath. And so very often they would die very quickly. But of course, if you break his legs, then he can't be the true sacrificial Passover lamb, because he must be without blemish. And so they get there, verse 33, they find he's already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. I think it's hard when you read these verses to, to think that John doesn't want us to see Jesus as the Lamb. He is, John says, he is the Lamb that all the other Lambs pointed towards. This is the Passover that all the other Passovers were waiting for. And yet the difference is that Jesus isn't an innocent third party, if you like. But that seems to be the twist when you look closely. Because in verse 37, you get that little prophecy from Zechariah, Zechariah 12, verse 10. And the twist there is that Jesus is God. Let me read it to you from Zechariah 12, 10. They will look at look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Who have they pierced? Says Zechariah, me, that is God. And it's striking, what is their mourning going to be like? Well, I think it's the kind of mourning you would hear the day after the initial Passover. If you hadn't sacrificed a lamb. It's the morning of grief as your firstborn son is dead. Jesus, God taking on flesh, is killed so that we don't need to die. They will look on me, says God, the one they have pierced. John longs for us to get that clear in our minds. Verse 35. He says, trust me, Trust me because I was there and I'm telling you the truth. And I'm testifying, I'm writing it down, I'm telling you so that you can believe. The fruit of God's dying king is rescue from God's judgment. And you know what? Today would be a great day to trust that for yourself. Maybe you're here looking in on Christian things for a first or a second glance, or you're not sure even if you're a Christian. If that's you, I want you to notice that John paints these parallels so clearly for us with the initial Passover. God is still angry with sin, just as he was with Egypt. God will come and judge, just as he did with Egypt. And yet by means of a lamb, God still comes to rescue We don't sacrifice lambs though in this church because we already have a lamb who's been sacrificed for us. And if you've not trusted him before then today is the day to do that. One poet put it very concisely Life is short Death is sure Sin the cause And Christ the cure